Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, hello to you all and welcome. I'm Bill Glaskell at the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. I'm here with our co-host, Susan Wachter of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Hello, Susan. Hello there. How are you? I'm good. Good. Ready for... the tremendous uncertainty. Shall we go straight to that, Bill? Well, we will in a second, because today we're zeroing in on state and local budgets as governors, mayors, and county execs get ready for fiscal 2024. The new fiscal year starts on April 1st for New York State and July 1st in most other places. So time is scarce. But what isn't scarce are fiscal reserves, rainy day funds, and general fund balances. They're around record highs after $5 trillion of federal pandemic stimulus money went into the economy. And, you know, flush reserves are pretty darn useful when we're looking at cost inflation and maybe a recession or slow session, as Mark Zandi calls it in the coming months. So it's lucky for all of us that our panel today is deep in the throes of budgeting as we speak. We'll hear all about that in a moment, as Susan mentioned. But first, a couple of words. We're coming to you live on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites, and also on the Special Briefing Podcast. We've taken your questions in advance, and we'll get to them in the second half. And of course, Special Briefing is made possible with the generous support of the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation. Thanks to you all. So now, as Susan mentioned, let's talk dollars and cents with Susan and our experts. To start the discussion off today, we'll call upon Eric Kim of Fitch Ratings. Yes, Bill, let me, if I may, just want to add a moment before you go on how uncertain these times are. You mentioned the slow session, Mark Zandi, and we have Torsten Slav talking about no landing. And then, of course, we still have hard landing discussion. And at the same time, on the inflation front, yes, it's decelerating, but it's persistent. And we have talk of possibly a 50 basis point increase, Lord Meister suggested next time around, as well as, no, it's being solved. It's going to resolve the inflation. So this is a time of great uncertainty. State and local budgets in a time of uncertainty, it is inflation, uncertainty, real economy growth uncertainty, and there is no one better to help us to get the view from the street than Eric Kim. So if I may, Eric well, Kim is- Susan, our... I mean, let me just go through the, if you yep. don't mind, let me just go through yep. the, the through the roster. As we, oh, go as ahead. So everybody, everybody knows who's on the call. And by the way, add to your list of uncertainties, the debt ceiling. And yes, and and an impasse, and and you know that will affect states and localities in so many different ways. So, along with Eric from the National Association of State Budget Officers or NASBO, please welcome Shelby Kearns for the latest on the Golden State's twenty-five billion dollar budget budget gap and more. We'll hear from California legislative analyst Gabe Pettick, and from Denver comes Colorado Budget Director Laura Larson, who also happens to be NASBO's current president. So welcome to you all. And now to get us started, here's again my good friend Susan Walker to, uh, to to get us going with Eric. Susan. Yes, thank you. And thank you for going through the roster. And we are starting 
as Bill just said, with Eric Kim. Thank you again to the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR for inviting me back here. Uh, it's always a pleasure to speak at these special briefings. Um, find them uh, incredibly interesting conversations uh, to participate in and also to listen in on. So let me just start off with some big picture thoughts and observations that will hopefully help frame our discussion today. So in December, Fitch's economics team projected that the Fed's monetary tightening cycle would be enough to put the U.S. economy into a short and shallow recession by mid-year. And given how closely linked state and local fiscal conditions are to the overall economic environment, we set our sector outlook for state and local governments to deteriorating in 2023 as a result. But at the same time, though, we still felt pretty comfortable that the rating quality and, and the rating for state and local governments would remain generally stable into the new year. So, And the reason for that is essentially that our view is that state and local governments have the tools, including things like solid reserves and well-managed liabilities, that should allow them to ride out what looks like it could be just a moderate recession at this point. That's the frame we're talking about, an uncertain but likely slowing economic environment, but a stable credit picture in our view. Now, of course, could everything go south? Sure. If the debt ceiling gets out of control and the United States government fails to pay its bills or send out social security checks this summer, of course. That, but that's not our base case. Let me dive a little bit more specifically into what we are seeing with state budgets. We're well into state budget season. We've got more than 40 governors that have offered up their executive budget plans. And over the next few weeks and months, legislatures will start to really hash out the details. There's some cautious optimism, I think. It's, it's what we're seeing with some hints of concern. Um, those hints are coming, of course, though, from some of the biggest places, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Generally, sales tax revenues are still coming in solidly on a nominal basis. We looked at data through December for the 20 largest states, and on average, tax revenues are up more than 5% over the prior year. And more importantly, states enacted budgets that forecast declines in tax revenues in fiscal 2023. So there's actually a substantial revenue cushion for most states in this fiscal year. And that's important because we are starting to see some hints of growth slowing. And that sample of the 20 largest states in the third quarter of 2022, sales tax growth on a year-over-year -year basis was 11%. That was actually a little bit down from what it had been in the 12 months that, that ended in June. And then in the fourth quarter, that slowed a little bit more until um, just 6.5% growth. Now, in some ways, this makes perfect sense. Sales taxes are nominal, so they benefited as inflation drove prices up. And as inflation has slowed over the past six or seven months, of course, sales tax revenues start to see slower growth. And more than 6% growth is obviously still incredibly robust for a pretty key tax revenue source. The trend is not going in the right direction. I mentioned some hints of concern coming from very large places. Two of the largest states in the country, California and New York, are reporting declines in income tax. And not just the part that's tied to capital gains, but year-over-year -year declines in withholding revenues. Now, both states have some clear explanations that tie back to the unique economies in each state. For California, the shutdown in the IPO markets last year and the declines in stock values, particularly on the tech side really drove down the value of stock-based compensation, which actually comes through as wage and salary income. Now, for New York, the decline in withholding is likely due to a big drop in financial sector bonuses at the end of 2022 and into early 2023. The big question, of course, is whether California and New York are exceptions or outliers, or 
are they the leading edge of a more widespread slowdown or decline in tax revenues? Now, April collections this year, as they are every year, will be an important part of that answer for us. Now, one other high-level observation about governor's budget plans Last year, we saw 31 states make tax policy changes in the midst of a really historic revenue surge. And while the pace looks to be slower this year, we still count at least 17 governors putting forward tax policy changes, some that are simple and not particularly costly over the long term, like one-time tax rebates in Georgia and New Mexico or modest expansions of sales tax exemptions in Arizona. But there are also governors with much more ambitious and potentially costly from a near-term revenue perspective plans, uh, such as in Mississippi and North Dakota, whose governors are proposing eliminating the personal income tax entirely, or at least for the majority of residents. So well, I'll just say that enacting significant tax policy changes amid an uncertain economic environment increases the risk of unexpected consequences. I mentioned earlier that despite some of these risks, though, we still expect state credit ratings to remain largely stable. And that's because we think states are well positioned for volatility. After the Great Recession, states really had more than a decade to recover and, and learn the lessons about revenue forecasting and building up fiscal resilience. And I think for the most part, they took that to heart and they came into the pandemic with a solid set of tools to manage volatility. And now, three years later, states are actually even better prepared for the next downturn, whether it's later this year or next year or, or beyond that. Reserves are at an all-time highs in many states. Budgetary liabilities have been paid down or even eliminated. States have made progress on addressing what we sometimes call hidden infrastructure liabilities uh, by making some real investments on that front. Now, I also wanted to offer a few thoughts on local governments as well. Uh, we don't have the same type of budget season as with state government. So it's difficult to offer really holistic picture on what local government budget proposals are looking like so far. What we can say is that as a, as a whole, local governments have been able to recover well after the initial shock of the pandemic. Across cities, counties, and school district reserve levels have been increasing for several years leading into the pandemic, and they actually accelerated through fiscal 2021. And we expect 2022 financial statements will show some more gains now, one challenge for local governments as they plan their next budgets is the transition away from federal stimulus. That remains a focal point for us in our analysis. Uh, there were certainly a number of communities that deployed funds for economic development and education and social initiatives, and governments will have to make some policy choices on whether to continue those programs once the ARPA money runs out in the next few years or to figure out a way to build those items into, into their budgets on a go-forward basis. We're also paying close attention to labor costs, which are usually a very significant part of local government budgets. We're obviously in the middle of, a his, of an historic surge in inflation, which has put some upward pressure on wages. That pressure is starting to dissipate a bit, but the labor market is still fairly tight and governments are still reporting that recruitment and retention challenges are very real for them. So far, we've not seen widespread instances of wage increases that really challenge government's budget flexibility, but that could change if inflation persists. Now, one longer-term issue we're also watching for local governments, particularly those with large downtown office cores, is what a, a slow and only partial return to the office means. I, I think the last special briefing was on this exact topic, so I, I won't belabor the point, just to say that for Fitch, how cities respond and evolve to what could be very significant shifts in the level and kinds of economic activity they have 
will be important over the medium and long term. With that, I will turn it back to uh, to Susan and Bill. Thank you so much, Erica, for that beautiful, comprehensive view of additional uncertainties, uncertainties from remote work to the movement away from federal support and initiatives and tight labor market. Now we turn, we're really pleased also to have with us Shelby Kearns, who is executive director of uh, National Association of State and Budget Office, who will give us the ground view of what's happening with state budgets and answer perhaps the question that was laid out by Eric, which is how well positioned are states for the likely volatility to come? Thanks, Susan. Good morning. Thanks for having me. For those of you who maybe aren't familiar with the National Association of State Budget Officers or NASBO, we have been the professional membership organization for governor's budget and finance officers for over 75 years. In all 50 states, the territories and Washington, D.C. are our members. We routinely survey states on fiscal conditions and budget balances. And our most recent survey, the 2022 Fall Fiscal Survey of the States, covered states' enacted budgets for fiscal 2023. We also monitor governor's state of the state addresses and budget proposals. And you can find summaries of those at our website at nasbo.org, um, along with most recent state revenue forecasts and, and a lot of other resources that provided updated information and a, and a good picture of where state budgets are right now. And all of that information, all those things that we're tracking, is why I'm more optimistic about the ability of states to weather a recession than, than any, any recession you know, in, in our memory. While most people only think about the impact of a recession on state budgets when we're facing a recession, when it's getting closer, when the risks are getting higher, I can assure you that state budget officers are always thinking about it. They're always planning for it. And that, of course, makes sense since they're the ones who would have to, to manage through the pain that it causes. The, the top reasons that I'm optimistic are, uh, number one, the strong revenue growth that states have seen in recent years. Number two, the strong growth we've seen in state rainy day funds. Three, the, the high total balance levels that states currently have. And number four, the additional steps that states have consciously taken to improve their, their fiscal outlook. You heard Eric mention that. So starting with the state's revenue growth, in fiscal 2022, general fund revenues grew 14.5%, and that followed a year of growth that was over 16% in fiscal 2021. Adjusted for inflation, that growth remains strong at 12.7% in fiscal 2021 and 5.8% in fiscal 2022. And those numbers actually exceeded what states expected to collect. Most states, 47 states, saw revenues exceed their original projections when their budgets were enacted for fiscal 2021, and 49 states actually reported fiscal 2022 revenues exceeded their enacted budget forecast, and collections actually exceeded original projections by an eye-popping 20.5%. Now, for fiscal 2023, states expected that growth to end, and budgets were enacted with revenue projections 3.1%, below the preliminary actual collections for fiscal 2022. However, at the time of our fall survey, 33 states reported collections were exceeding those forecasts. And more recent news and revisions to state revenue projections suggest that states will actually experience another year of growth. And that growth has allowed states to continue to build strong reserves. In fiscal 2021, state rainy day fund balances grew an incredible 58%, and they continued to grow in fiscal 2022. At the end of fiscal 2022, rainy day funds reached an all-time high of $134.5 billion, and that growth was widespread, with 43 states reporting year-over-year -year increases. 
A majority also reported plans to continue increasing their rainy day funds in fiscal 2023. To put that number, you know, those dollar numbers are they're big and they're hard to put in context. So, so to put it in context of, of how much states spend, as a share of general fund spending, total rainy day fund balances reached 13.3% in fiscal 2021, and then they dropped slightly to 12.4% in fiscal 2022. That slight drop was due to a significant increase in expenditures that year, um, driven in part by one-time investments by states, and not by a drop in rainy day fund balances. The median rainy day fund balance as a share of general fund spending um, is, is a sometimes a better way to look at that. It, it makes, you know, it's less skewed by outlier states. So that that median rainy day fund balance was 10.3% in fiscal 2021 and 11.6% in fiscal 2022. In fiscal 2023 enacted budgets, rainy day fund balances are expected to represent 12.4% of general fund expenditures in total with a median balance um, at a similar level at 11.9%. Thinking back prior to the Great Recession, states had rainy day fund balances representing slightly less than 5% of general fund spending. I actually started in state budgeting at that time, and we really felt like 5% was a really strong savings rate. But we learned, of course, that it, it wasn't enough, and we moved our targets closer to 10%, which honestly seemed nearly unattainable in those years coming out of the Great Recession. However, states' savings you know, hit those record levels prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, and they've fortunately been able to continue to grow. And I also want to stress that those increased savings balances are the result of conscious decision-making by states. Not only did states set higher savings targets, they also strengthened rules for depositing funds, such as laws directing a portion of a state budget surplus, that's the the revenue that states collect above their their projected revenue, into their rainy day funds. And other states link deposits to revenue collections over a certain percentage or direct a share of tax collections from volatile revenue sources to savings. Rainy day fund balances also aren't the whole story. It's important for us to look at at total balances, which NASBO defines as the rainy day fund balance plus a state's ending balance. That ending balance is another source that can be used to help smooth revenue and expenditure volatility from year to year. Total balances have seen tremendous growth recently. They roughly tripled in size over the past two years after revenues far exceeded budget forecasts, as I mentioned, in fiscal 2021 and fiscal 2022. In fiscal 2023, total balances are projected to total just under 25% of general fund spending. Now, when I look back at total balances in fiscal 2007, states have roughly three times the cushion that they had going into the Great Recession. And finally, with the one-time budget surplus that they've experienced from exceeding their revenue projections, states have taken many steps to improve their fiscal resiliency and prepare for an economic downturn. They've paid off debt. They've used surplus funds for capital project to reduce the need for new borrowing. They've made supplemental payments to pension funds. We've seen states be able to cash flow their expenditures rather than use short-term borrowing. So that, of course, saves states money on interest payments. And rainy day funds also aren't the only place that they build savings. A specific area that we've seen states build fund balances is, is preparing for future disaster spending. Um, we've also seen states create additional savings accounts for Medicaid expenditures, for education, and other specific uses. And I also want to stress just how much emphasis states have put on using one-time funds, whether those are their federal funds that we've seen states um, receive in recent years, or one-time general fund surplus dollars for one-time investments. So that, of course, creates fewer ongoing obligations. And those one-time investments are easier to pull back or to spread over multiple years if economic conditions change. Thank you so much. Let's turn now to Bill to introduce our next speaker. 
Well, thanks, Susan, and thanks, Shelby. Just a quick reminder that you're tuned into special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. The archived editions of this and all of the past special briefings can be found on our websites or on the special briefing podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. And now let's get back to, to business with the latest from Sacramento with, with, with Gabe. Uh, California has enormous uh, fiscal reserves by virtue of, of voter approved referendums. So it's got it's got lots of money on hand. On the other hand, it's got an estimated $25 billion budget deficit and a huge debt for its unemployment trust fund. So how is this quandary going to play out? Okay, yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you to the Volcker Alliance. And thank you, Bill, for the introduction. So just to level set here, as the California Legislative Analyst our office, the LAO Legislative Analyst Office, serves as the nonpartisan fiscal analyst for the legislature. So those are our bosses. And at this time of year, our role is to help the legislature unpack and evaluate the governor's budget proposal. So that is what we have been doing recently. And in our assessment of it, you mentioned the $25 billion budget deficit bill. We have described the governor's budget proposal as reflecting an $18 billion budget deficit. Now, the budget documents refer to a somewhat larger $22.5 billion problem, but that is because they include some expenditures in their baseline that we do not include because while they were planned for and sort of conceptually agreed to by the administration, the legislature has not approved those in any formal budget law at this point. So we do not include those. And as a result, that, that spending is taken out of the expenditure base. And so we estimate the governor's plan identifies an $18 billion problem. In any event, the, the deficit in the governor's budget is primarily the result of a $30 billion downward revision to revenue estimates over the budget this year and the budget year combined. The governor's proposed solutions are to this problem because, of course, we do have to pass, according to the Constitution, a balanced budget. So the governor does propose solutions to this deficit. They are heavily oriented toward changes on the spending side. About $13.6 billion or three-quarters of the proposed solutions are reductions or delays to scheduled spending. The other 25% or $4.3 billion are in the form of various cost shifts, shifting some general fund costs to other funds of state government primarily. Overall, we think the governor's approach to the budget deficit is generally prudent. However, our best estimates suggest that the revenues will be another $10 billion lower than what the governor's Department of Finance is anticipating, which would result in a deficit of around $25 billion, as you mentioned, Bill. So rather than $18 billion, we think there's going to be a $25 billion budget deficit. The economic outlook is very important here. We do believe that the risk of a recession is heightened. We began saying that last May, and we continue to hold that view. But it's very uncertain. It's not a foregone conclusion, and it's not a part of our baseline assumption. And for the record, it's also not a part of the governor's Department of Finance or the governor's budget proposal baseline assumption either. So neither office is assuming a recession, and yet we both estimate that the state faces these two budget deficit estimates. Looking ahead, 
And if the governor's assumptions in his budget and multi-year plan were to hold, the governor's budget proposal puts the state on a path to have deficits in the future years as well, $9 billion, $9 billion, and $4 billion in the, in the three subsequent years, respectively, following the upcoming budget year. So with that in mind, we did a recent analysis that actually just came out yesterday, and we are estimating that there is really only about a one in five chance, 20% chance that revenue growth will be sufficient to cover the governor's proposed expenditure level. So our recommendation to the legislature is to pursue solutions that would address the $25 billion deficit that we estimate without using reserves. But I do want to be clear. Our office is not saying that the state should never use reserves. If after solving the level of deficit that we estimate, the problem has gotten worse or the economy has gone into a recession, we would say that that is really the time to consider using reserves and it would be warranted at that point. The reason for this, we've gotten a lot of questions about it. And the reason for this is that as we see it, the reserves are really there to support core baseline spending. However, Currently, the state is scheduled to spend about $15 billion in one-time allocations in the upcoming budget year in 2023-24, and then another $9 billion and $6 billion in each subsequent year. These are allocations to one-time spending. Those allocations were prudently made at a time when the state's budget surpluses were, were historically large. So the emphasis on one-time spending was cited as a form of budget resilience. And indeed, once you remove all of this one-time spending from the, the budget plan, we estimate that there's about a 50-50 probability that revenues will be sufficient to cover the core baseline. And we think that that strikes us as about, as about right, because at that level, the state is relatively balanced between not overextending its commitments, while also not unnecessarily curtailing spending on important programs that the policymakers care about. So the bottom line is the question you know, before us is, should the state use reserves to sustain one-time spending that was predicated on peak revenue levels, or should the state curtail that spending and hold on to its reserves as a way to protect its core baseline spending in the event that the deficit worsens or if we do have a recession? And our answer to that is we think it should be the latter. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Well, thanks, Gabe. We'll pick this up uh, in the discussion in, in a couple of minutes. But but first, Lauren Larson is with us from Colorado. Welcome back, uh, Lauren. Wonderful to see you. Gabe just talked about how California should, what it should do with its with its reserves. You're in Colorado. You've got the taxpayer bill, right? So you're giving money back. So tell us how, how this all plays out for fiscal 2024, what you're doing with your reserves, your federal budget aid, and Tabor. Absolutely. Great to see you again, Bill. Thanks for having me back. And Susan, really appreciate being here and talking with my distinguished colleagues, uh, Shelby and Eric. Great to see you again. And Gabe, looking forward to getting to know you. This is a really exciting time in Colorado. Our revenues last year were up 24%. And as a benchmark, because I know that's there's there's been a lot of new revenue everywhere, but we are measuring our trend line from pre-pandemic, and we are now exceeding our pre-pandemic trend line. And analysts could look at this nationwide because every state is doing this now as part of their Department of Treasury calculation under the revenue loss provisions for the American Rescue Plan Act, which 
Secretary Yellen set up a formula that allowed states a little more flexibility under the law to the extent they had revenue loss relative to what was expected. So we're all measuring this, and it's really exciting to see that we are now above our pre-pandemic trend. Our forecasting more return to normal with a very shallow slowdown in two quarters ahead, but our budget is, is well balanced within those confines, and we're still going to be refunding rebates under the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, uh, even under that economic scenario. The, the governor's second term, we launched this January. It was really exciting to present a budget that's very focused on saving people money. This is what households need right now. Some flagship proposals are cutting red tape to increase housing supply and tackle the rising cost of housing, property tax relief, because along with that rising cost of values in homes, uh, 26% we're seeing property tax bills headed towards uh, an unsustainable level. So providing some relief there. Free preschool for every household in Colorado that's giving families $6,000 a year per child. It's, you know, really makes a difference for families with young children. We're hedging against a risk that we see coming up within our workforce. We have a, a shortage that I described it to help me get my head around the numbers. If we double the number of high school seniors in Colorado and had them ready and skilled for all our open jobs, we couldn't fill them all. We double the number of our high school seniors. So our workforce crisis is really pending. We have a big investment in our budget on how to get more folks credentialed, upskilled, and trained in our um, most high demand industries, advanced manufacturing, construction, healthcare, and uh, early childhood are a few. So we're excited about that package and so is our business community. We have record reserves. Shelby talked about how states have grown their reserves and she, I have a similar history in, in this role of inheriting a seven and a quarter percent reserve, and it's now a strong 15% with a fiscal plan to keep it. Uh, I think we need it for a potential downturn. The last two, the two recessions preceding the pandemic hit our general fund by 17% over multiple years. And so this 15% feels wise and prudent to keep, and we have a fiscal plan to, to sustain it. Eric talked about some income tax reductions. Uh, we have done some modest reductions in the state. We're now down to 4.4%. But again, even under with after those income tax reductions, we're still going to be refunding in the forecast tax rebates to taxpayers under our Constitutional Taxpayer Bill of Rights, which last year in this big record year of 24% revenue growth that exceeded pre-pandemic trend line, that led to 750 checks per taxpayer going out last summer, another 250. We didn't get that all paid out. The year came in higher than we expected. So there'll be another 250 to go out this spring associated with last year's big increase. And then the following year, we're looking at 600 per taxpayer. So this is sizable money in people's pockets. Uh, last, I'll just flag that we are being really excited about the Bipartisan Infrastructure and Jobs Act, and we have set aside budget funds for that to for our match requirements to really be competitive with our applications and draw down as much as we can from this, this opportunity. And we have another request before the legislature now to increase that opportunity. So that's that's the news from Colorado, and I look forward to the discussion.
That is really exciting stuff. Such a change from the years after the Great Recession. We're all we're all not only swimming in cash, but we're also spending it very judiciously in most cases, which is a wonderful thing to hear. Susan, why don't you kick off the the conversation? We got uh, thirty five minutes till uh, till the show ends, and we've got lots of questions. Absolutely. So we have specific questions about spending down and responding to specific challenges. For example, from Justin Carlson, policy analyst of Illinois Policy Institute, are states that have long-term fiscal challenges with pensions and other debts budgeting conservatively for fiscal year 2024, given the risk of recession and pension portfolio underperformance? Should they? Who wants to take this on? I can start off here. I think I would first say it's it's very early in budget season, so we can't say exactly what the final budget choices are going to be for fiscal 24. Um, all we have, obviously, are executive proposals. We can look at recent experience. I mean, we've heard a lot from Shelby and then Lauren and then Gabe about what states have done. Recent experience in our view has been that states have indeed been fairly conservative in how they've budgeted with revenue forecasts that turned out to be on the right side, and then putting a lot of money towards one-time or or short-term investments. When we look at executive budget plans for next fiscal year, I touched on this earlier, we are seeing states recognize that the economy is slowing. Some are even forecasting a recession. Um, California, not amongst them yet, and that revenues will slow as a result. Um, Budgets are built accordingly. There are definitely spending proposals for new initiatives and tax policy changes that that could be expensive. Uh, We'll have to see. Over the next few months, how governors and legislatures approach to what looks to be an evolving economic environment. And we have a specific question uh, going to infrastructure on stormwater. Is that an area that you folks see perhaps specifically in California and Colorado are, or more generally, are states investing in stormwater management given the flooding we've seen? Is that part of the prioritization of infrastructure? Spending. Who would like to take on that specific question? I could chime in. We've, you know, in our match, this budget set aside for infrastructure matches, we've held out some just for locals, especially small jurisdictions that need support to bring their match funds and to work on their applications. It's just a it's a lot of work. There's a lot in water for the locals. We also are going to make some statewide investments in water quality. It's it's really significant. And disaster response generally, we have quite a bit of state money going to wildfire mitigation, flood mitigation. I'm sure California, I'll pause for Gabe, because this is just requiring more and more of our budgets than it ever has before, both disaster response and, and prevention. Thank you, Lauren. Gabe, your thoughts? Yes, we, we have substantial ongoing effort. There was a bond measure passed back in 2014, so there which is providing a lot of significant funds for infrastructure projects in this area. But then in addition, there is a range of other activities the state has been investing in in recent years, including in the areas that Lauren mentioned. We did, in addition to the budget issues that I was talking about, the governor does have new discretionary spending proposals in the current budget, even with the the deficit he's identified he does uh, propose about $130 million in spending on an urban flood control, flood management proposal. And, you know, of course, that's going to be an important thing for the legislature to consider because even though we, it would require offsetting reductions elsewhere, obviously the recent storms have brought that to the front of mind. So that's part of our deliberations as well. 
Toby, okay. are you are you seeing that as a national trend as the as the budgets roll out? We are. We're seeing it both in in budget proposals that are rolling out this year, but also what we've seen the last few years um, with with so much one time general fund surplus dollars, but also state and local fiscal recovery funds from ARPA in the in the infrastructure bill. We've we've really seen states put a lot of emphasis on one time infrastructure projects. Can I uh, switch signals a little, uh, if you don't mind, Susan? There's a bunch of related questions. And Joe Coletti, uh, a friend from the House Majority uh, Oversight Committee in, the, in North Carolina, poses this, but several other several other people in the, in the audience opposed it. So how are state governments especially preparing and how should they prepare for the winding down of COVID emergency provisions and funds and also for a new round of federal austerity, which which touches on a possible outcome of the debt ceiling impasse. You know, we have programmed cuts in Medicaid coming that have that are already already been scheduled. Plus, who knows who knows what will happen if uh, if there's if there's a spending cut deal. So, how are specifically and, and generally how are states planning for this, and how should they plan for this? I'll jump into just to start here. I- I think from our perspective, from a credit perspective, the things that we look for in state governments to do is to prepare themselves for the inevitable rounds of economic and budget volatility, right? We do our best to rate through the cycle, as we call it. Um, Economic cycles are inevitable. Downturns will come. So we look to see what, what are the tools states have been putting together and how are they putting together that basket of different measures and mechanisms that they can use to, to manage through those those instances. And the wind down on, on federal aid, and not just the direct aid, but really more importantly, the economic support that the federal government has provided, the potential, as, as you alluded to, Bill, of more of a pullback on, on federal spending going forward. That's just another example of the potential volatility that states need to prepare for. So we're, we're looking towards what are states doing in terms of reserve funds? Well, what are they doing in terms of paying down their budgetary liabilities to maximize their flexibility going forward? What are the different tools that they have? So that, that's what we look at in our rating analysis. And that, that those are the things that we've been focused on. And we touched on this earlier, but uh, we think for the most part, states have actually done a pretty good job since the Great Recession, certainly since the pandemic's onset, to prepare themselves and and, and get their resilience in, in a pretty strong position overall. Bill, may I do a follow-up on this? Sure. And this is for you, Eric, but also for every for everyone on the panel. Has there been a sea shift going back to the Great Recession in the years before in attempting to budget through the cycle? And as you said, Eric, right through the cycle. Has there been a change in how disciplined states are in the way they're thinking about reserves? Who would like to start with that? I'd love to start with the shift we've seen in Colorado to moving to a multi-year look at the budget from a single year, I actually think that's a, a gift of all this stimulus dollars that forced us, you know, into this multi-year planning in a way that, you know, the annual legislative cycle tends to discriminate against because there's you're you're setting an annual budget that can really push things in the out year. So when the when all the federal money arrived, we knew that if we it it left to normal devices, most of it would get spent on things that would cause fiscal cliffs and cause problems. And there was in our fiscal community with our legislative leadership and the the governor, there was great agreement that we couldn't do that to the state, that we didn't have 
we had a, a thin budget to begin with and we couldn't go put it on a razor's edge. And so it was a, um, a gift in some ways that we were able to, to take that multi-year look. I think only about 10% of our discretionary allocation went to things that we are now considering continuing in our base budget and looking at under roll-off. And that's been a very large effort in the executive branch side of tracking every dollar and the roll-off, when the roll-off will happen and what the impacts will be. What, what does the evidence say about the program? Is it working? What are the equity, diversity, and inclusion impacts on our on the people who live here? So it's it's really a full-on effort, but this, it, this gift of multi-year planning has been a shift for the state uh, in response to managing this opportunity of the stimulus dollars. Thank you, Lauren. Gabe, do you see that also a, a more step back multi-year planning over time in California taking root? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's really been a dramatic change from before the Great Recession to where we are now. The state, we did do, the, the office I oversee did do multi-year projections and the Department of Finance did multi-year estimates. But then after the Great Recession that was codified into our state constitution as part of Proposition 2, which also established our budget stabilization account. And so one of the key virtues of that is that it not only requires a one and a half percent of general fund revenue every year put into the reserve, it also takes the peak. So if we get revenues from capital gains that exceed 8% of general fund revenue, that increment is Put into the reserve. And as everybody on the session probably knows, California has a volatile revenue structure. And so that is a really valuable uh, tool. It made it so that we could weather what we anticipated would be a budget problem with, in 2020 with COVID. Didn't turn out that way, but it was sort of a good dry run. It was a good test. And, over, you know, much like what Lauren was saying, I mean, in the last couple of years, we've had extremely strong revenue growth, 30% and 20% in the two preceding fiscal years. And the governor and legislature reached agreement to allocate more than 95% of that, the resulting surpluses to one-time or temporary spending. That being said, even though over the last those years, we've had 11, uh, still 11 billion of the revenue growth was allocated to ongoing. And so we do keep a close eye on that because that 11 billion will grow to represent about 25 billion of ongoing spending commitment once it's fully in place. So even with all of the good decisions, there is still likely to be budget pressure for us in, in the coming years as we see it. Let me just add something to, to this, if, if I may. It, it looks like Eric had something to say. That, that I'm going to engage in a little self-promotion. Long-term planning is something that the Volcker Alliance has advocated for in our budget grades and our reports. Earlier this year, we produced a report called A Cloudy Crystal Ball, which is on the art and science of, of budget forecasting and uh, has a lot of how-to for, for policymakers who want to follow it. We, we Gabe was very helpful to, uh, to us and to, to Phil Dean, the former Utah budget director who wrote this. The paper is called A Cloudy Crystal Ball. It's on the Volcker Alliance website if you'd like to download it, and you can read all about this and and why why a flexible long term approach is necessary just for the reasons Gabe cited. And your office has been really one of the leaders in stress testing budgets, really really 
kicking them around. There's some states that still, at least at least publicly facing, only publish a one or two year outlook. Uh, they may do internal in, internal simulations that we never see. So it's it's very important for the public to uh, to 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 know that there are different possibilities. And if I may say so, the work that Volker has done on this is extraordinary and perhaps encouraging what might we might call a race to the top in <laughs> state discipline. So we are pleased to be partnering with you in amplifying that great work, and we will put that on our website as well. We have seen since the Great Recession all of these these tools, stress testing, multi-year forecasts. We really have seen a growth in that. We see states taking a much more long-term approach, but I also wanted to to answer the question about how are states going to face another round of federal austerity? And and I don't get the sense states have become accustomed to a lot of federal aid. You know, we've seen that these these past few years in in response to the pandemic, but that's sort of a different bucket than on these the ongoing programs that have been funded by the federal government. And I I get the sense we'll we'll uh, be able to adjust back to that with you know a in a rarely in a fairly quick fashion that that states are accustomed to that and the mindset has really been a lot of prepare for the worst so with the enhanced fmap for medicaid that states saw that was originally tied to the public health emergency and because that was an unknown you saw states budget for that to go away for the past few years so those things have, have really been built into state budgets and they've been prepared for that for that funding to go away now for some time. So I now we're better prepared now that we have actual dates and we have some certainty, but I I don't think that there's been a shift in in the state mindset that that these large amounts of federal aid are going to be the new norm. Well that's good, I suppose. Eric? Yeah, I think the only thing I'll I'll add to this is I think it's important to remember looking back to 2008, 2009 how deep those revenue declines were and how large the shortfalls were for for states and 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 their budget managers and their policymakers and i think those were scarring experiences and states have learned from that policymakers have learned from that and that does get to what you're alluding to susan in terms of all the things that we have seen since then uh changes in how revenue forecasts are done changes in how revenue forecasts are thought of multi-year forecasting more uh, explicit and, and public, public stress testing of budgets, things like that. The, those kinds of things are direct outgrowths of the really challenging experiences from the 08-09 recession. So let's pull back from this broad picture and narrow down to a more specific question. Again, we heard today from Gabe and also from you, Eric, <clears throat> that the California personal income tax revenue are taking a big hit from the slowdown in tech. And New York is as well from the slowdown in tech and Wall Street. Is this a California, New York specific issue or are there other states that are being hit by the tech implosion and the Wall Street bonus issues this year and potentially going forward with the recession? I think we're not really going to know until April. I think that's going to be a key month in terms of income tax revenues. It always is, right? It's a, That's always so important. Last year, um, the April revenues just kind of surprise everybody and really lose state revenue forecasts out of the water and was a big reason that they had such large surpluses uh, to work with. Um, and we'll have to see what happens this year. We're, we're seeing lots of different things from states in terms of their forecast. Uh, some some states are anticipating essentially nothing on the uh, 
non-withholding side in terms of revenues. I'm anticipating a huge drop-off in the April numbers. Other states not being quite as drastic, but also being more conservative than what they have been previously. I'm certainly expecting some kind of drop-off. It's not entirely clear yet whether California, New York, again, are that leading edge or really exceptions and outliers because of some aspects of, of their economy. We are still seeing, as I mentioned earlier, some steady revenue growth across most states right now. Some signs of slowing, but it's we're not quite sure yet where, where the ultimate trend is going to go. And so much of this depends on on the job market. You know, it, it's it's still incredibly tight. The jobless claims have, have have shrunk, but you know, if you look at the state unemployment trust funds, at the at their worst, they were almost sixty billion dollars in the hole. All, all that all that money basically has been paid off except for except for California New York and and a little bit from Connecticut so it, and that was many states used federal funds to to, uh, to to pay that off it was it was okay under the law so you know a, a lot so sales taxes personal income taxes are gonna are gonna hold up e- even even with Wall Street and Wall Street and and tech shrinking we haven't seen what's what's really going to happen with jobs. Yeah, I think the labor market pictures is is incredibly important. Um, yeah, that, that jobs number from January really surprised everybody. And then the consumer spending number we, we just got, I think, earlier this week was also very, very robust. So um, the economic signals are, are definitely mixed. So pulling back again for the very big picture on the needs for infrastructure, that is another area where there is perhaps not such good news, but maybe some good news in terms of the additional federal support and taking on some of those long-term challenges. But are we really going to be able with this federal funding to make a, a, a big dent in this, in this large infrastructure need across the country that state and local governments are responsible for? Lauren, do you want to help us with that in, in terms of Colorado and Gabe, in terms of California? And then perhaps Shelby, a bigger picture? Yeah, we're seeing it making a huge difference already. We had a 10-year transportation plan but it wasn't funded. And it now with the the money, we were able to use some of the money from the Rescue Plan Act to help make a deal on a long sought after deal to, to modernize our financing for roads. And now it's, in a, it's serving as important match money for IIJA. And so all of a sudden we find ourselves in this wonderful position of having a funded 10 year plan for our roads instead of an unfunded one. That's just one example. Great. Gabe? Yeah. Well, in California, it's somewhat of a similar story where we see a fairly large augmentation to our transportation spending plan over the next five years. We're anticipating under the IIJA an additional $3 billion in formula-based uh, revenue allocations to our, tr- our transportation spending. The other thing about it is that it's part, it's actually serving as part of our solution package because we had allocated, as I was mentioning, a lot of our surplus to one-time spending and a substantial part of this was being allocated to transportation and infrastructure projects that traditionally had not been cash funded by the general fund. we budgeted it that way. And now that we're facing a problem, part of the solution is to pull that back. And fortuitously, we had the IIJA passed and it's allowing us to continue with some of those same projects by 
swapping in federal funds to replace what would have been general funds. So it's definitely proving to be a helpful element. Shelby, you want to give us a big picture on this? We're seeing echoed across the nation exactly what, what Lauren and Gabe have said between the state and local fiscal recovery funds and the IAJA and state general fund surpluses. We're seeing really a historic investment in all sorts of infrastructure, water, wastewater, transportation, broadband, housing. I think we'll look back upon this period as a, a real investment in the U.S. infrastructure. It's, it's pretty exciting to see what states and localities are able to do. Terrific. And I just want to say that we will be following this infrastructure need and response going forward, as well as the changes that we're going to see in the economy with the volatility, which means that April will be tremendously important, as we just heard from Eric. But we're coming to the end of today's session. We might have a quick lightning round. What do you see, each one of you, quickly as the most concerning on the horizon for state and local budgets, but perhaps focus with the state. You want to start us off on that, Eric? Sure. I, I think, honestly, the, the biggest sort of black swan risk, if you will, is, is the debt ceiling and, and what happens there. Um, our expectation is that things get resolved and then we, we get an increase or a waiver or whatever it is. But if things go south, as I said earlier, all bets are off. I mean, that could really, really tank the economy in unexpected ways. Gabe, what do you see on your radar as the most concerning going forward? Risk? Yeah, probably a recession risk for us. Lauren? We think we'll fare well in a recession in Colorado because we have a higher percentage of services sector. So we're we're feeling bolstered by that. But more than anything unique to any state is global recession risk. So this it is very concerning, the hesitation on raising the debt ceiling. And it, it definitely is top of mind for us. Debt ceiling. Shelby, quickly, and then we will turn back to sign off. Thank you. Shelby? Uh, I think- I think the unexpected shocks, I, I feel like each year we, we tend to have something that that we couldn't foresee. And that's that's what worries me is what we don't know. That's what the reserve funds are for. Bill, take us out. Thank you. Well, hard landing, no landing, slow session. We'll we'll be we'll be tracking this. We'll have you all back on in, in coming months and and more. I hate to say it, but that's it for another special briefing. Thank you so much, Susan. Thanks to all of our panelists, of course, and to our great audience for joining us today. We'll be back on Thursday, March 30th with another special briefing. Watch our websites and your email for details. And a couple of words of thanks also to the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation for your support. And special thanks to our production team, Graham Dowd, Noah Winritzenberg, Idalis Foster, Steve Klieg, Amy Montgomery, Diana Lind, and Arden Jordan. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.